Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. This is the 2022 season premiere of Monitor Monday for January 10th. It's a special 60-minute edition. Look out, look ahead. Today, we'll hear from leading subject matter experts on important changes coming in 2022. Standing by our former CMS official, Matthew Albright, President and CEO for the National Association for Home Care and Hospice, William Dombey, Senior Healthcare Consultant, Tiffany Ferguson, Dr. John Fogel, Healthcare Attorney, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Senior Healthcare Consultant Angela Phillips, Dr. Carolyn P. Morrissey, Rack Monitor Investigative Reporter Edward M. Roach, and Dr. John Zeller. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the season premiere of Monitor Monday. Today is our special 60-minute live edition of Monitor Monday with some of healthcare's most respected subject matter experts. Look ahead to see what you can expect in 2022. We have much news to report, and so we begin this morning, as we always do, with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. What a stellar lineup for our first broadcast of 2022. Now, I'm sure others will note that January 1st marked the start of the No Surprises Act. I've said it before, but it bears repeating. This is not a job for case management or utilization review or the physician advisor. Be aware of what your hospital and your physicians are doing, but don't let them make you responsible for the required written notices. It's not your job to find out what the anesthesiologist charges when a patient is having a scheduled colonoscopy and needs to be given a good faith estimate of all the charges. Now, I'll note that many of you may become involved if a patient happens to get one of those notices and asks to be transferred to an in-network facility, but I doubt that's going to happen very often. Now, moving on, one thing we talk about a lot is medical necessity. I know, I hate the term, too. It means something different to every single person. But in the broad scheme of things, it means, well, will this service provide benefit to the patient? In some cases, that's very clear. Opening a clogged artery during a heart attack provides benefit. On the other hand, it's not clear that opening a clogged artery in a patient who is not having a heart attack provides them benefit. And this uncertainty is the genesis of many disputes with payers. The doctor recommends doing something, but the payer doesn't want to pay because the benefit is not proven. Now, last week in the British Medical Journal, they published a review article looking at the data supporting the clinical effectiveness of some common orthopedic procedures. If you look at that graphic on the screen, green represents areas where there is proven benefit. Along the bottom are the procedures, and along the left side are the benefits that are potentially available from that procedure. So as you can see, there's not a lot of green and not a lot of data supporting many of these procedures, including arthroscopic rotator cuff repair and lumbar spine fusion. Now, does this mean the surgeries don't work? Absolutely not. The lack of data does not mean there's lack of efficacy. This review had very strict requirements. Literature reviews like this certainly have the potential, though, to lead to more disputes over medical necessity, but they should make us think twice about the procedures we're doing for patients and whether we're truly benefiting them. 
right? Emily has placed this paper in the resources section if you want to download it. And I'll point out the New York Times actually covered this in an article yesterday. Now moving on, an interesting OIG audit was published in late December looking at a hospital in New York. This one's interesting for two reasons. The first was because the hospital was selected because, as the OIG stated, the hospital was high risk for noncompliance based on their refusal to enter into a corporate integrity agreement after settling two false claims acts um, cases. So, wow, I didn't know that vengeance was one of the criteria for being audited. But second, this audit found the hospital was correct in 94 out of 100 charts audited. That's a 6% error rate, and that's almost unprecedented. Nobody does that well. Right? An audit that was released um, Friday of an MA plan found a 65% error rate. That's more the norm. Right? And in five of the six charts this hospital had denied, they were short-stay inpatient denials. And we know how well Maximus does reviewing those. Yet the OIG still went ahead and extrapolated the results of this hospital's six errors and demanded a huge repayment. If only we could audit the OIG auditors. Chuck, back to you. Thanks, Dr. Hirsch, very much. That was the vice president of R1 RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And coming up at about, mm, let's say, six minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Tiffany Ferguson, Matthew Albright, William Dombey in Washington, Dr. John Fogel, Angie Phillips, Dr. Gerald Morrissey, Rack Monitor Investigative Reporter Ed Roach, and Dr. John Zellum. It's Monday, it's January the 10th, and you're listening to the live 60-minute edition of Monitor Monday. Look out, look ahead, stand by. The American College of Physician Advisors is the only physician-led nonprofit national association of thought leaders representing all aspects of the physician advisor role. Developed to expand the influence of physician advisors through education and industry networking, the membership consists of physician advisors and other hospital leaders focused on a broad range of topics, including utilization management, case management, clinical documentation integrity, regulatory compliance, revenue cycle, and executive leadership. You're invited to partner with physician leaders and associated healthcare professionals and join their effort to foster greater physician executive influence within healthcare systems. Access uniquely formatted Medicare inpatient-only lists designed for ease of use, the results of their latest physician advisor survey, and take advantage of CME discounts available only to members. Click on the ad on the RAC Monitor homepage or go to acpadvisors.org to learn more. Here now with the Modern Money Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. And David, what could be risky this morning? Well, Chuck, it's the risk of making predictions. So I don't generally like doing these New Year's predictions because it turns out it's hard to see the future. I'm pretty confident that if we re-listen to our January 2020 broadcast, none of us said a single word about COVID. But uh, during 2020 and 2021, few other things really mattered. But even with that, giant caveat, there are a couple of things I feel pretty comfortable projecting right now. For example, I'm confident saying that audits and investigations are both coming back with a vengeance. If you're thinking, what's the difference between an audit and an investigation, I would call actions by a MAC, a Medicare Administrative Contractor, or a RAC, a Recovery Auditor Contractor, an audit. 
Well, something from the Department of Justice or a state attorney general like a, or a fraud control unit is an investigation. Now, I'm somewhat shocked by the sheer volume of civil investigative demands from U.S. attorneys, RAC requests, TPE and UPIC letters, uh, and civil investigative demands that my clients have received in the last two months. Whether it's a change in perceptions related to COVID, a new approach by a new administration, or some other factor, I don't really pretend to know. I just know audits and investigations are on a major upswing, and I figure that's going to continue for the coming year. The second prediction is that I think we're going to see more pressure on healthcare pricing. The No Surprises Act, the price transparency regulation, and other factors are going to combine to bring increasing attention to the very quirky nature of how we charge for most healthcare services. I've often said that with the exception of the airline industry, I can't think of another area where the pricing is as convoluted as, and inconsistent as it is within healthcare. Many clinics, home health agencies, and other healthcare providers don't understand that portions of the No Surprises Act apply to them. In particular, clinics that send patients to a hospital or an ambulatory surgical center will need to provide the patient with the disclosure required by law. And one of the confusing things here is there are disclosures, there are consents, there are notices, it's a handful. But you're gonna need both the notice and the disclosure if you're a clinic sending people in. Perhaps more importantly, any licensed healthcare professional who provides services on a scheduled basis for patients will need to provide the good faith estimate described in the regulations. I've already had clients receive demands for those good faith estimates. While some of the clients were prepared for this, others were very much in the dark about this provision. I strongly suspect that various prices inconsistencies are going to get a renewed focus as patients get a better understanding of healthcare pricing. Now, if you're still struggling to understand the No Surprises Act, don't forget Rack Monitor had a webinar on surprise billing provisions, and you can check that out in the store. My final prediction is that a few more provisions in the Medicare manuals will disappear. Last year, CMS pulled the manual language on shared visits because it wasn't supported by a regulation. A quick reminder that I'm doing a webinar about shared visits in Incident 2 on January 18th. I think Clark's going to mention that in a bit. Now, it's becoming more widely accepted that manuals are not binding. I had a recent call with a pair of U.S. attorneys, and they stated that they would never bring a False Claims Act based on sub-regulatory guidance like an LCD or a manual provision. And that is definitely something they wouldn't have said five years ago. As a result, when CMS wants to make a manual provision stick, they're likely to issue a regulation. And remember that in the meantime, if you think there's a manual section unsupported by a regulation, you can ask to have it struck. So 35 years ago this week, Timbuk3's The Future is So Bright I Have to Wear Shade was the number 20 song in the Billboard Top 40. The song is actually about the risk of nuclear holocaust with the bright future being all ironic. It seems like that's the perfect song to close this segment with, because when it comes to predictions, I don't have the faintest idea whether the future is bright or as dark as that song feared. I sure hope it's the former. Things are going great.
Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, David, very, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson & Byron in downtown Minneapolis. And now, with the very latest news on the social determinants of health, is Monitor Monday's newest correspondent, Tiffany Ferguson. She's going to replace Alan Fink-Sandrick, who is uh, taking a leave of absence to pursue her doctorate degree. And good morning, Tiffany, and welcome to Monitor Monday. Thanks, Jack. Before I get into today's topic, I would like to say I'm honored to be taking on the weekly spot for Ellen Fixamnik. Ellen has been extremely busy educating the next generation of social workers and contributing on a national scale to the role that social determinants of health play in healthcare delivery. Due to her growing popularity and demands, as Chuck has mentioned, to her doctoral program, she has decided to pass the torch. Personally, Ellen is a mentor, a friend, and has paved the way for the recognition of impact of social conditions on health disparities. She has been a regular contributor for Monitor Mondays for the last three years, providing a new perspective of healthcare revenue cycle from a social and ethical lens. Regardless of the positions we hold, each day we have an obligation to remember our humanity for one another and our commitment to improving the healthcare industry. Thank you, Ellen, for reminding us that every patient has unique conditions that are impacted by their social factors, genetics, and life choices. Now for the news. As we surpass our second year of coronavirus and deal with the new wave of the Omicron variant, we are again strapped with a growing problem of the great healthcare exodus. How can we advance as a healthcare industry to address social determinants of health when we are struggling to just cover the basics due to staffing? One year ago, our colleague Ellen published an article on the 10 ways to tackle occupational trauma, which corresponds to the growing impact we are feeling on our healthcare workforce as it relates to burnout, worries of getting the virus, workforce demands, and concerns for personal safety. Today, we continue to see frontline workers leaving in droves out of healthcare or to travel assignments for greater pay and improved work-life balance to cope with this new normal for workplace and environmental conditions. In conjunction with the open positions, we see a decrease in provider appointment availability, delayed drugs and medical supply deliveries due to our ever-growing canceled flights, unstaffed beds at hospitals and nursing homes, and loss of revenue due to untimely filing because there's just not the workforce. U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics projects the healthcare employment industry will grow by 2.6 million from 2020 to 2030 numbers. This calculation did not consider our pandemic and was an estimation based on the aging workforce. And although many healthcare workers took their retirement during the pandemic, we also saw a growing traveler trend for nursing rise to a 40% increase from pre-pandemic years. The increase in staffing needs has grown in all aspects of healthcare, and today there are approximately 250,000 positions open on Indeed in the healthcare category, ranging from everything from nursing, case managers, to remote coders and auditors. So my question for today's listeners is how many of you are impacted by significant staffing shortages? Greatly impacted, moderately impacted, not really impacted, and does not apply. And with that, back to you, Chuck. 
Thank you very much, uh, Tiffany. That was Tiffany Ferguson. Tiffany is a consultant for Phoenix Medical Management, and Tiffany is a new rack monitor and monitor Monday correspondent reporting on the social determinants of health. Tiffany replaces Alan Fink-Sandman, who is completing her doctorate degree, and we wish her well. Up next, Matthew Albright with a Monitor Monday legislative update. The Legislative Update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Matthew Albright. Chuck, while we were on break from this broadcast for much of the past month, the federal government and BC in general were quite busy on healthcare issues. First, in COVID news, the CDC shortened the time individuals should stay isolated after testing positive for COVID. They've decreased the isolation period from 10 days down to five days. The time recommended for quarantine after exposure was also decreased down to five days for unvaccinated people. Those that have been vaccinated should wear a mask, but don't have to quarantine at all after an exposure. Also in COVID news, this past Friday, the Supreme Court heard arguments from both the Biden administration and from the states that are suing the administration over its vaccine mandates. The court heard arguments about two of those mandates, OSHA's test or vaccinate mandate directed at private companies with 100 or more employees and the CMS vaccine mandate directed at employees of hospitals that use Medicare or Medicaid. That includes most hospitals in the United States. Now, the question before the court on Friday was whether these mandates should go forward or whether they should be paused while the courts consider the arguments more fully. So far, since Friday anyway, the court has not come out with a definitive answer on whether either of these mandates will be paused. However, from the tenor of the questioning on Friday, most analysts are saying that the justices are leaning in favor of the CMS mandate on hospital employees, while the justices appeared more critical of the private company mandate. Let's stay tuned this week for more from SCOTUS on that. Looking forward to 2022, this year is an election year, which means there's just a small window of time at the beginning of 2022 for Congress to get anything done. Congress was not able to pass the Build Back Better Act before the end of the year, so that package is back on the agenda for this year. Listeners may recall that the Build Back Better Act is a social spending and climate change bill. In terms of healthcare, the package would reduce healthcare premiums for the ACA exchange, expand Medicaid for an additional 4 million people, and offer hearing coverage through Medicare. Democrats have signaled they will continue fighting to pass the Build Back Better Act in early 2022, but it will be taking a back seat to a voting rights bill that is now the Democrats' priority. Chuck, I'll close by mentioning a CMS report released in December that found that U.S. healthcare spending increased nearly 10% in 2020, much of that due to government spending on COVID. At the same time, the share of the economy devoted to healthcare spending has climbed to a striking 19.7%. That is, healthcare now makes up nearly 20% of this country's GDP. Back to you, Chuck. Wow, Matthew, thank you very much. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright, the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer, Brazellas. Here now with the latest update on the deadly coronavirus is Dr. John Fogel. Good morning, Dr. Fogel. Thanks, Chuck. If you're confused by the ever-changing CDC recommendations,
Omicron, you're not alone. Even healthcare workers are. Omicron behaves very differently from all the previous Greek alphabet named variants. It's the new king of the hill. 95% of new COVID-19 infections here are caused by it. What do we know about Omicron? It's so new that our knowledge about it is regularly changing. It started in South Africa in November. Its newness is causing much of the confusion. We tried to lock the barn door after the horse was out by banning air travel from African countries, only to find just days later that Omicron was already widespread. Its presenting symptoms tend to be a little different than previous variants. It's crazily contagious. In fact, it's one of the most transmissible viruses ever. It loved the holiday season because families and friends gathered from around the country. The Thanksgiving break, followed by Christmas and New Year's, was the perfect human fuel. And it's a master at vaccine evasion. Even fully vaccinated and boosted individuals can still catch this virus and pass it along. Controlling exploding Omicron cases here have been hampered by testing challenges. Good luck scheduling a PCR test. And even if you can get one, getting the results after 72 plus hours is worthless. This variant has a shorter incubation period than its predecessors, one to two days. So the best tests, though imperfect, are rapid antigen tests with results in 15 to 30 minutes. Getting home antigen test kits is also a challenge. They seem to disappear off drugstore shelves as soon as they are stocked. Difficulty in getting tested is harming everybody. Otherwise, well, patients are showing up in ERs to get tested. That's a terrible idea. Waiting in a crowded ER increases your risk of catching this virus, while overwhelming already burnt-out doctors and nurses who are struggling to take care of sick patients. Healthcare facilities are being stretched beyond their limits, resulting in the rationing of care in some places. Chuck, it's not all gloom and doom. Omicron isn't Delta. Omicron results in milder disease than previous variants, provided that you are fully vaccinated. Unless you have a significantly compromised immune system, hospitalizations and deaths from Omicron are highly unlikely if you are vaccinated and boosted. These vaccines work despite some degree of vaccine evasion. Unless you live like a hermit, it will be difficult to avoid catching Omicron over the next few months. It's that contagious. So this is what I think we should do in the short run. One, get vaccinated. Even if you've had COVID-19, you can get it again and be real sick. And if you are fully vaccinated, get your Pfizer or Moderna booster shot as soon as possible. It doesn't matter which one. I'd recommend a flu shot too. The flu took a long vacation over the past two winters. It's back. Emergency departments are beginning to report cases of flurona, the flu plus COVID-19. Vaccinations will lower your risk. Although mask mandates are rare in most of the U.S., be smart and considerate. Wear a face mask when indoors in public places. They protect others and also protect you. All masks are not equal. The best is an N95, followed by a KN95, then a surgical mask, and lastly, a cloth one. Any mask is better than no mask at all. And consider double masking for added protection if you only have the inferior masks. Three, avoid indoor restaurant dining whenever possible. Eat outside, get takeout, cook at home. Four, plan ahead and order some home antigen test kits so you have them when you need them. You and your friends or family can reduce your risk of catching and spreading COVID-19 by all testing before gathering. As for the long run, Omicron won't be the last variant. COVID-19 will likely never disappear. It will become 
pandemic, just like the flu, with seasonal outbreaks. Booster shots and periodic public health recommendations to wear face masks are unlikely to go away anytime soon. We can learn to live with this new normal. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much. That was Dr. John Fogel. Dr. Fogel is a former frontline physician at Rhode Island's Brown University. So here's a question. Who really does own the medical record? Well, the founder and CEO for Streamline Solutions Consulting just might have the answer. Dr. John Zellum joins us now. And Dr. Zellum, what does your research indicate and who does really own the medical record? Well, good morning, Chuck. Good morning, all, and Happy New Year to everybody. Uh, It it really was an interesting survey and series of articles that I went to, and I may not have the exact answer, but I have a direction. So recently, I have been involved in several discussions around who owns the chart, the medical record. I really didn't know the correct answer, and I'm sure most people don't either. Uh, They just have an opinion, many times based on experience and passion. So I decided to do a brief survey on LinkedIn to see what the general consensus was, and here are the results. Very simply, 61% said it was the patient who owned the the chart, and 30% said the hospital or office setting. The rest were very small numbers. I purposely left that question to be somewhat vague, and although there was not a lot of participation, I wasn't surprised that the majority of the votes were that the chart, the medical record, belonged to the patient. It's the patient's own data, right? It's their information, right? Well, with a few uh, definitions as background in mind, there's one distinction that needs to be established. That is ownership of the data versus access to the data. The access issue is easy. Clearly, there are regulations and rules that give a patient the access to their medical record, and when it comes to this access, patients have the right to view and copy or get copies of their data in the format of their choosing, request changes to that information. This ownership and control helps to ensure that the personal medical records are correct and complete. According to Forbes Council's member, Raj Sharma, what's important to remember is that personal health records that are not part of a medical provider's electronic health record are not considered to be legal records and therefore are not HIPAA-covered entities. However, there are still privacy laws for protection. The terms medical record, health record, and medical chart are used somewhat interchangeably to describe the systematic documentation of a single patient's medical history and care across time within one particular healthcare provider's jurisdiction. This does get more involved and possibly confusing as to where this data is housed and who is the provider, but the rules apply across all locations. In general, ownership of this data belongs to the individual or company who created or authored that information. Data ownership includes criteria such as authorization to collect, view, edit, and share specific data. How long will the data be, and how long will the data be maintained? This question is critical from a cyber risk protection and perspective. For example, intellectual property laws protect original works of authorship. Medical records represent professional medical opinions of a physician or a medical institution and therefore may not necessarily be the patient's property. To emphasize this idea, there are several examples. When you hire a photographer, who owns the photos? When a biography is written, who owns the rights to the book? When you upload your personal photos on social media, do you still own them? We consider our healthcare data to be very personal and confidential, and we have been led to believe so by privacy laws. 
We really don't see copyrights stated in medical records by the authors of documentation. So is it implied? A copyright is a form of protection provided by the laws of the United States for original works of authorship. Patients have legal privacy, security, and accuracy rights related to their health information under federal and state laws. However, once that information is captured and documented in written or electronic form, and since the healthcare provider owns the media in which the information is recorded and stored, the healthcare provider gains the property, the, the property right of possession of the data. In essence, the healthcare provider becomes the legal custodian of your healthcare record and is given specific legal rights and duties relating to possession and protection of that health record. Now, is your question answered or are you still confused? I still maintain some confusion because who owns the chart requires a complex answer, yet something as simple as the survey at the beginning of this article may imply that there are opinions and, and, and uh, ideas out there. So keep in mind that the patient's physical health records belong to the healthcare provider, whomever that may be. Having ownership and control over that information helps to ensure that the patient's personal medical records are complete and accurate. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you very, very much. That was founder and CEO for Streamline Solutions Consulting, Dr. John Sillum. Dr. Zellum has an article on that very subject. It's coming up Thursday in Rack Monitor. How are the new regulations impacting home care and hospice providers? We'll have the details when William Dombey joins us from Washington. And later, Angie Phillips reports on the latest regulations impacting inpatient rehabilitation facilities. Those stories and more are coming up in about 60 seconds. This is Monitor Monday. It's a broadcast service of Rack Monitor. Stand by. Be prepared for a full-scale resumption of audits targeting the non-compliant reporting of implantable medical device credits, as well as outlier payments for outpatient device procedures. Every known auditing agency has indicated an intent to rev up provider scrutiny, and this definitely extends to reporting implantable medical device credits and managing patient accounts when such devices are billed. In short, Medical device credits will once again become easy targets in all three major patient care settings, inpatient, outpatient, and ambulatory surgical centers. Learn how to protect your revenue and remain compliant during an upcoming webcast on implantable device credit reporting and outlier payments. The webcast is January 27th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register now at the Rack Monitor Bookstore. Here in the United States, there are more than 33,000 home care and hospice organizations, and heading up that massive enterprise is our next guest, William Dombey. He is the association's president and CEO, and good morning, Bill. Welcome back, and so what's on the horizon for your members in 2022? Good morning, Chuck, and Happy New Year to you all. Uh, On the front of our radar for Look Out, Look Ahead is the future of the Build Back Better Act. Uh, There is a lot at stake for health care at home within that legislation, And it may not be on life support, but there are definite questions about whether it will cross the finish line in 2022. $150 billion to expand Medicaid home and community-based services, workforce supports for long-term care services and supports, particularly home care, and other innovation opportunities that are emerging on telehealth, hospital at home, and even a skilled nursing facility at home alternative under legislation known as the Choose Home Act. 
but business as usual is also part of the 2022 look out look ahead and this week the medicare payment advisory commission will be meeting in washington on a virtual basis and both home health and hospice are on the agenda for their discussion it is anticipated that the medpac recommendations for home health will include a payment rate reduction of five percent as well as a new requirement for home health agencies to track both telehealth services and changes in workforce. The Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, MedPAC, has expressed concerns about the profit margins of home health agencies. I would redefine that as the MedPAC margins because they're far from real profit margins. There is some concern regarding staff turnover. Uh, and at the same time, we have seen a decline in the number of patients served in the home health program along with the number of visits provided on a per episode basis. So does that mean home health is on the bullseye of MedPAC? Not necessarily so, but it certainly is in one of the priority areas. Likewise, hospice, concerns about profit margins as the growth in hospice now finds that more than half of all decedents in the country use hospice services in the last year of life. But along the way, we have seen a growth in the number of for-profit hospices and a margin increase in terms of the MedPAC margin to be in the double-digit territory. While the volume of visits provided to individuals during their length of stay has been on a decline, leading MedPAC to consider, and we'll be voting on this week, two different recommendations. One, to freeze payment rates for 2023, as well as to reduce the annual hospice aggregate cap by 20%. That would be a very dangerous change if Congress were to consider and include that recommendation as it would affect 60% of all hospices and highly likely lead, lead to discrimination against typically long-term hospice patients, particularly those with neurological disorders and such as dementia. Also in the business as usual category for look out, look ahead, is the 2023 Home Health Medicare Payment Rule, which is in development as we speak. Expected to go public sometime in June or early July of this year, but unanswered questions from the 2022 rulemaking are front and center of concern for home health agencies. What will be the payment rate depends upon a finding as to whether or not the new payment model, PDGM, was budget neutral in 2020. CMS gave us a hint with a modeling of a 6% excess spend on home health in 2020. However, as we all know, 2020 was a very chaotic year in healthcare, and it would be advisable if CMS were to ignore what happened in 2020. But all eyes are on that rulemaking development if you're a home health agency. There is no way home health agencies could withstand a 6% reduction in payment rates in 2023. So, Chuck, it's a lot to look forward to in 2022. Thank you. Thanks, Bill, very much. There is a lot to look forward to in 2022. That was the president and the CEO for the National Association for Home Care and Hospice, William Dombey. And coming up next, the latest regulations impacting inpatient rehabilitation facilities. That's when the nation's most authoritative expert, Angie Phillips, returns to the broadcast. But first, this very important message. Here's important news for providers. Medicare billing rules for shared evaluation and management, E&M, visits are changing in 2022 and again in 2023. 
Get the scoop during an important webcast featuring healthcare attorney David Glazer. Under new rules for calendar year 2022, CMS aims to pay the lowest possible rate for shared E&M service delivered by physicians and non-physician providers. It's spelled out in the 2022 Medicare Physician Fee Schedule final rule, but the new shared billing rules are complex and prone to misinterpretation. Plus, the shared billing rules will undergo further modification in 2023, adding to the confusion. During this Rack Monitor webcast, Prominent healthcare attorney David Glazer will bring much needed clarity to the shared billing rule changes for both 22 and 23. In addition, he'll devote a portion of the session to incident two billing in the physician office, reinforcing important concepts. Register now to attend Shared Billing Rules. Learn about major changes in the 2022 Medicare Physician Fee Schedule. This crucially important webcast is January 18th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register now at the Rack Monitor Bookstore. Thanks, Mark Anthony. You know, here at Rack Monitor and ICD-10 Monitor, we're very proud to be participating in the Heroes Vacation Club. Now, if you're a healthcare frontline hero, or if you'd like to refer one, here's your special opportunity. It's the Heroes in Healthcare Vacation Club. And frontline heroes in healthcare get rewarded for being, well, frontline heroes. For example, you get immediate access to week-long resorts starting as low as $379. Now, the Heroes Vacation Club provides discounts on travel anywhere you want to go, and you can save on hotels, resorts, car rentals, and airfares. Is that right, Clark? That's right, Chuck, and you can sign up right now at Rack Monitor or ICD-10 Monitor. That's the Heroes Vacation Club, and we are very grateful for the commitment and the hard work of frontline workers, and we are honored to be part of creating some vacation memories for you. Here now with the newest challenges facing inpatient rehab facilities, and to explain these challenges that they are facing is Angie Phillips. Good morning, Angie. Good morning. Thanks, Chuck, and good morning and Happy New Year to everyone. Well, first off, the long-awaited implementation of the EarthPi 4.0 will occur for all discharges on or after October 1. In case you missed it, this change was included in the Cost Report Year 2022 Home Health Final Rule, an interesting place to address it. So, Bill, maybe you can let us know about other EARF uh, regulations that get buried in the home health um, uh, regulations. CMS believes that the ERFs now have resources needed for training and updates to the workflow to complete these updated assessments. Additionally, we believe that this is a strong indicator of CMS's focus on moving forward with data collection to address social determinants of health as updated quality measurements include several of them. So we need to be addressing these in our practices. Next up is a MedPAC recommendation from the December public meeting for a 5% reduction in Medicare payment for ERFs in fiscal year 2022. This recommendation is consistent with update reports from earlier in 2021 and included a strong recommendation for this reduction. While we've seen the same reduction for payment for several consecutive years, there appears now to be much stronger support from several of the commissioners based on their questions and comments as noted in the meeting transcript, and this issue certainly bears watching. The commissioners also acknowledged anomalies in the 2020 spending and costs due to COVID. And if payment pushback isn't enough, we have a pending demonstration project that would require 100% review of EARF claims in a certain sample group. 
The proposed review choice demonstration for Earth is still looming and will have significant impact. The comment period that ended in October had extremely strong opposition from both provider and patient advocacy groups for many reasons, including the impact of the PHE and patient access to care. If implemented, the demonstration would last five years, begin in four states, Alabama, Pennsylvania, Texas, and California, and expand to all IRFs located in any state covered by MAC jurisdictions, JL, JJ, JH, and JE. So if the Js are confusing, that would be anybody who has a MAC that is Noridian, Novitas, or Palmetto. The IRF would choose either 100% pre-claim review or 100% post-payment review and may be locked into that method until they meet 90% threshold for affirmation. The review continues in six-month cycles, and if the IRF reaches 90% affirmation based on 10 pre-claim requests, they could opt out of future reviews except for a 5% spot check. This could be massive, and the review would extend uh, initially in those four states, but by year three, we'd cover all the MAC jurisdictions. And of course, as we've already heard this morning, there are ongoing audits and audits and more audits. OIG continues to review IRF claims with alarming denial rates, mainly due to medical necessity issues, and based on claims that the IRF did not demonstrate that at the time of the admission, the patient met the requirements noted in the benefits policy manual. Again, as we've heard David say many times, it is often uh, issues in the benefit policy manual that do not match what's in the code. Targeted Project Educate continues, routine MAC audits, CERT and RAC reviews, and the denial reasons are fairly consistent across all the reviews. If there's such a term as appeal fatigue, I suspect IRFs are experiencing it. And finally, with regard to regulatory issues, IRFs need to continue to evaluate how they can support quality care and throughput as we continue through the COVID PHE including the COVID-specific rehab programs and utilizations of the available waivers, which we do predict will be extended due to the recent uprises in COVID cases. Beyond the regulatory issue, IRFs are also experiencing workforce issues, as Tiffany described earlier, another challenge in meeting the care needs of our patients. Your focus for 2022, review your processes for the updated IRFPI, Check your documentation, particularly the pre-admission assessment information to be certain it supports the admission in the event that you are involved in the demonstration product. Uh, Be prepared to appeal and continue to watch for changes. All things considered, 2022 looks to be a challenging year for all of us. So buckle up, strap on your helmet, and get ready for the wild ride. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Angie, very much. That was one of the nation's foremost authorities on inpatient rehabilitation facility services, Angela Phillips. Angie is the president of Image and Associates. We now switch live to New York where we check in with Rack Monitor investigative reporter Ed Roach. Ed, good morning. And what are some of the latest technologies involving Medicare audits? Hey, Chuck, how are you? During 2022, healthcare providers are going to see more options to exploit cyber technologies designed to aid them in management of Medicare audits. 
you know, you have to get an idea of the amount of information that's floating around in the Medicare system. It's really astonishing. There are 1.2 million NPIs, 359 million beneficiaries, 1.7 billion services delivered per year. The documentation required in any audit is substantial. An auditor can request a half of 1% of all the claims filed by a provider. This is divided into eight sets of 45 days each. So how much paper is this? Well, an average patient record is about 131 pages, but it goes from 27 to 560 pages, and that includes around 26 different forms. How big is this? Well, 150 pages uh, per inch is the thickness of it. So a patient record would be like 0.86 to 3.6 inches thick. If you look at this in terms of a banker's box, you know, the boxes you store stuff in, which is 12 by 15 by 10 and a half, it could store between 4.3 and 18 patient records. Now, typically 30 cases are involved in each audit. Uh, that's two to seven banker boxes, but the rack can request up to 600 patient records each 45 days. That would be 1,116 banker boxes per year but if you add in all the supplementary correspondence, it's probably around 2,230 boxes per year. Like, if you think of this in terms of a van, like a standard delivery van, that, that would be 248 boxes. So each year, a single provider would be sending over like nine vans worth of data. You just think of midnight, a huge line of vans white vans all converging towards Washington, D.C., loaded with these papers. Also, every 45 days, you get a new set of deadlines. So you have five hard dates for a submission of documents, 800 separate deadlines for each year's audits. Appeals can take four to five years, so one -third of, at least one-third of these are carried over, and that ends up to be about 1,066 deadlines per year. So this is really hard to manage. Uh, the Miracle Medical Association said that on average, hospitals lose $4.9 million per year due to mistakes in managing audits. One worker went on vacation and allowed $1.2 million worth of appeals to lapse. Failure to meet deadlines, failure to file the documents on time, loss of documentation. There are many problems in managing this process. But there are some cyber solutions uh, that are evolving. I just want to highlight one, which is RevKeep software. This system links into your electronic health record system. It controls access to the enterprise EHR so that attorneys, consultants, coders, statisticians, and other experts can get access. It logs all the transactions. It has a calendaring system that lets you give automated reminders for all the filings. It also has a dual screen capability so that you can see local coverage determinations and other data, and it uses artificial intelligence technology to help you write the best appeals. It keeps track of what kind of language is most successful. Uh, the current estimates are that it saves about 40% in terms of productivity. What takes three to four hours can be done in one hour. So in 2022, I think we can expect to see more developments in cyber-aided Medicare appeals technology. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ed, very much. That was Rack Monitor investigative reporter Edward Roach. He was calling in from New York. We've been reporting on the alleged bullying by Medicare Advantage auditors. 
here now with the latest report is Dr. Geraldine Morrissey. And good morning, Dr. Morrissey. Welcome to the broadcast. Good morning, Chuck. Thank you. You know, Chuck, there's no denying that a frictionless payer-provider relationship is an admirable goal in healthcare. But is it truly achievable while still meeting the unique business case of each participant? Who wins? Who loses? And what do providers have to surrender to achieve a frictionless relationship with their payers? Because the financial aspect of healthcare is a zero-sum game, the concept of frictionless healthcare presents many challenges. I'd like to borrow a metaphor from Arthur John Gray and say, payers are from Mars and providers are from Venus. The provider sets out with a goal. We want to provide quality healthcare safely and with compassion, all while promoting wellness, relieving suffering, and restoring health. Providers provide care regardless of whether a patient can pay, and in fact, the majority of hospitals in America are not-for-profit institutions. So while hospitals look to make money on their services, it's generally to ensure that they cover the cost of providing care to keep the doors open. The payer, on the other hand, has three jobs, manage risk, make money, and keep their investors in the public market happy by hitting revenue, profit, and growth goals quarter after quarter. Payers study risk extensively to ensure that they collect enough premiums to cover the enrollee's medical costs while still securing a profit for their effort because the payer's ultimate goal is to optimize profitability or shareholder value. Now, both business cases are fair and reasonable. One is not bad or evil. It's just business, and it's their mission. Unfortunately, the payer's mission inherently creates friction with the provider's mission. Payers manage risk by aggressively managing something called the medical loss ratio. The Accountable Care Act requires that health insurance plans spend a specified percentage of premiums on claims or else pay cash rebates to policyholders. The goal of this requirement is to ensure that premiums paid are actually being used to pay for medical care. Unfortunately, payers have been able to navigate around this requirement in a number of ways. One example is that many payers have established subsidiaries who provide care or other administrative services to the payer and its members. As a result, the medical loss ratio requirement is met by paying itself for services that qualify under the medical loss ratio and thereby shifting profitability away from the insurance division of its business and allowing profit margins to expand while avoiding the medical loss ratio restrictions. Can payers and providers work together in a frictionless environment? Not if providers must always consent to incessantly new tactics to reduce that revenue. The balanced approach to frictionless healthcare would require payers that are willing to accept a profit margin that does not continue to grow. That doesn't seem likely anytime soon, but by understanding the business case of the payer, the provider is better equipped as we move forward to understand who wins and who loses with some of the most commonly offered frictionless approaches out there. More to come, but back to you, Chuck.
Thanks, Dr. Morrissey. That was Dr. Gerilyn Morrissey. Dr. Morrissey is a Senior Vice President of Clinical and Regulatory Affairs for Versalis Health. And Dr. Morrissey is the newest member of the Rack Monitor Editorial Board. And be sure to read her in-depth reporting on Medicare Advantage Auditor Bullies in Thursday's Rack Monitor. And now's the time for our Monitor Monday listener survey. Once again, here's Tiffany Ferguson. Thanks, Chuck. I asked in the beginning of the segment, how many of you are impacted by significant staffing shortages? Well, the results were likely as expected. 43% said greatly impacted. 38% said moderately impacted. 9% told us that they're not really impacted and 9% was does not apply. So our listeners are right there with us that a lot of us are impacted by the healthcare staffing shortages. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, everybody, very much. Now it's time for our town hall segment. David, let's answer some of the questions that are coming in this morning. You bet, Chuck. There are a bunch of them, but I think we can get through them all. So Kim asked, so we've got outpatient therapy clinics that schedule patients. Where do I find my responsibility on this? So the first thing I'd say is I have been surprised at how poor some of the articles I've seen out there. So make sure you're getting it from a good source. The second thing I'd say is CMS made things super confusing by doing things like they've got two forms that are different forms, but have the same form number. Finally, here are some actual sources. So I already mentioned that we have a a webinar that uh, you can listen to. And then alternatively, if you shoot me an email, I can send you a couple of other articles and things like that. But the short answer is what you'll need to do if you're an outpatient therapy clinic, the main thing you're going to need to worry about is the good faith estimate provision. Um, If you were a physician clinic, you would also need to worry about the disclosure about the rule. All right. The next question, Dr. Fogel, is there any guidance regarding the best or most accurate home COVID test? Is it clear that the test must be administered as intended or it can't be accurate? Yeah, right now, these tests are really hard to come by. So I think the best tests are the ones you can get your hands on. But you really need to follow the instructions uh, and just do it correctly. And my recommendation is trying to do two tests within, let's say, 24 to 36 hours. Uh, you're less likely to miss an early case. And it's really not clear if people are asymptomatic, entirely asymptomatic, will you know, easily test, particularly in those first one to two days of testing. So that's why multiple tests are best. Thank you so much, Dr. Fogel. Here's a really good question from Kathy. So for consistency, why doesn't CMS adopt the freestanding clinic incident two requirements for provider-based encounters? This would certainly be streamlined compared to the requirement for shared visits. And you're right, Kathy, we will be explaining why they can't in more detail on the upcoming webinar, but the short answer is there's a regulation that prevents the billing of incident two services in a provider-based thing. Now, they could change that regulation, so that would be a possible solution. It isn't the one they chose. Got a question for you, Angie. I know you've extricated an awful lot of people from trouble. What do you do when you get a denial that is based on a manual provision? Okay, this is actually a two-pronged question with a two-pronged answer. I am not an attorney. So 
based on the number of denials. If it's a onesie or a twosie and it is a MAC that has generally been favorable with my client, I have some specific language that my attorney buddies, you included, uh, have helped me script to go with those small ones. But when we have a large number of denials, what we really do is a partnership with a qualified healthcare attorney who deals with the legal language and brief of why the manual provisions um, don't necessarily apply. And I script a clinical rebuttal demonstrating not medical necessity because in rehab it's very important that we point out to these reviewers that the manual says that it is reasonable and necessary. So while the header for that section of the manual says medical necessity, all of the other language relates to reasonable and necessary. So we will paint that picture of why the patient or, or the beneficiary needs these services and partner with a strong attorney to deal with the legal language and information that's there. And I think that's very, one of the very important things in dealing with appeals is we need to understand that we only got um, we we want to win this at the first level because it is such a long period of time if we have to go all the way to the ALJ level. So partnership approach, strong perspective from both the clinical and the legal side on those regulations. Thank you so much, Ms. Phillips. I think we have time for one more, and so I will answer Wendy's really good question. If a state ends its PHE, its public health emergency, do the federal waivers such as telehealth still apply in the state? And I understand why this is confusing, but this is a great time to explain the difference between state and regulatory provisions, which, generally speaking, don't interact that much. Now, there are exceptions. So, for example, the No Surprises Act basically is a federal provision, but it says we defer to the state if the state gives you more protection. And that's something that HIPAA does. But when it comes to the public health emergency and things like that, Medicare waivers are Medicare waivers, and they don't depend on what the state does. Now, Medicaid is more complicated because it's a state program. So there, what the state does can affect coverage because that is generally coverage determined by the state. But by and large, a state's action won't have much impact on federal, but there are ways which it might. So for example, for Medicare, to cover a service, the physician has to be licensed. If the state grants waivers on licensure, then a federal service would be considered licensed. But if there's no longer that option and a non-licensed physician couldn't render uh, the provision in the state and the state's action would have a collateral impact on Medicare. And I don't know if I explained that well enough, but generally state and federal is a separate kettle of fish. So now that I've muddled that thoroughly to start 2022, Chuck, I'll turn it back to you. Oh, good. Thanks very much for turning it back to me. And folks, that is going to be a wrap for this special edition of Monitor Monday. We thank you very much for being with us today. And we thank our outstanding panelists, including Matthew Albright, William Dombey, Tiffany Ferguson, who is our new social determinants of health correspondent, Dr. John Fogel, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, the 724 ATM dispenser of regulatory news, Angie Phillips calling in from the Metroplex in Dallas, Texas, Dr. Gerald Morrissey, Rack Monitor Investigative Reporter Ed Roach, and a special thanks to Dr. John Sullivan for his report on who owns the medical record. And remember, when we're not on the air, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday podcast anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's free. You can listen to us on Stitcher. Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. 
Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporter for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week, everybody. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.